well, good afternoon. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as always, this is Corey Worden. You're listening to the ASSP Healthcare Practice Specialties Health Beat podcast. And today, as usual, we are also producing in coordination with the Association for Occupational Health Professionals in Healthcare, or AOHP, and their Caring for Healthcare Professionals podcast. So we're glad to hear everybody. Excuse me. We're we're glad to have everybody here today. Apparently, my tongue is tied. Um, and we've got some fantastic guests today. So you might remember Amber, uh, Amber Johnson. We talked with her about a year and a half ago, maybe a year. Uh, we were talking about emergency management and how that relates to healthcare. And so she is joining us again today. And then we've also got a first-time guest, John Fleming, who is um, works in public health preparedness and does a fantastic job, particularly a lot of operations in the last several years in particular. So we're glad to have both them on board today, and we're going to talk about just that. We'll talk about emergency management, we'll talk about healthcare, talk about public health, and all of the stuff that goes into that, including safety management. So we're going to go ahead and get it going, but I don't want to speak for y'all. So if we could, if y'all can give our listeners just a quick intro about yourself, um, your work, experience, anything that you'd like to put on you know, your little um, your little 60 second bio. We appreciate that. Um, John, why don't we start with you? Thank you. Thanks, Corey. That, that was a gracious introduction. Uh, yeah, so I've been working at public health um, for, for quite a while now. I've been, been doing this since uh, the, the late 1990s. I came here to Texas in, in 2004 and uh, got, got to play part in, in Hurricane Katrina response. Uh, and then, of course, we had Ike and Harvey, and uh, then along came uh, several uh, biological threats like Zika and Ebola and, of course, H1N1 and now COVID, of course, and monkeypox, uh, and now a little bit of Ebola coming back around as well. Uh, so we, we've been busy. My, my line of work is uh, really about coordinating with uh, different partners, primarily within the health department, but also a, a lot of external partners to develop uh, readiness and capabilities for these public health responses, uh, you know, ranging from pretty much all of the uh, natural disasters uh, and, and you know, public health outbreaks. Uh, and because we're a full service health department, that also includes the human services element. So it's pretty broad base and, and uh, very lively. <laughs> Certainly in the last several years been very lively. And I'll hand it over to Amber. Thank you, John. Um, so my name is Amber Johnson. Um, I am currently a emergency management consultant, but the majority of my career uh, was spent working with the hospital preparedness program and then also leading the corporate emergency management department for a large healthcare system here in Houston. Um, I am a certified emergency manager uh, through the International Association of Emergency Management. Um, and I have very much been enjoying this new venture into consulting, um, getting to see emergency management different entities, different sectors, and from a national basis. And Corey, I'll turn it back over to you. Cool, thanks. Well, that's fantastic. Definitely glad to have both y'all here. And I know y'all have done a wide variety and array of different types of operations, which is, which is fantastic. So we'll go ahead and get right into it then. So first things first, of course, you know, 
like y'all just said, y'all have worked in different capacities, whether it be um, public sector, uh, public health, or whether it be a large scale hospital system, all different types of things. So in that, in both those cases, um, what I'm curious about is how the emergency management construct works in terms of uh, planning, preparedness, response recovery, and how does that relate to the people that you serve? Like, and do you do uh, planning? Do you do uh, logistics, um, training? What, um, what, what are kind of the ins and outs and the different types of things that you provide? And of course, I know John kind of alluded to this already, but what types of situations have you done that for? Like different types of natural disasters or uh, biohazards, things of that nature. I'm kind of curious of the, the, the scale and the scope and the types of things that you do. Um, Amber, why don't we start with you this time? Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Corey. Um, so after 9-11, there was a huge push in the emergency management industry of standardizing the practice and into those pieces that you just described, the preparedness and mitigation, the response and the recovery. Um, since starting consulting, I've gotten to see on a national level that that foundation remains the same, whether you're talking about a healthcare system or a private company um, or a city or county, state, federal, um, that overall foundation and umbrella uh, remains the same in emergency management. Awesome, cool. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of standardization. I know, uh, even in my experience, you know, I was my my first life. I was in the in the Air Force, and during that time was when the Air Force was going from what they used to call the Survival Recovery Center, and they changed to the National Incident Management System. Which, of course, because it's the military, they still had to change it and call it Air Force Incident Management System, just because that's what they do. But um, a lot of standardization there, and it's always, I always tell this story when I talk to students, especially is that, you know, I didn't know that this was a job that people did until I was in the military. And then when I was in the military, we would teach the students. I was, I was an emergency management instructor. And so we would teach the students about all of the different players in the ICS and in the NIMS and the EOC and whatnot. And one of them, of course, was the safety officer. And at that time, even after being in the military for three years, I didn't know that safety was a job that people did. I, I, in the Air Force, what they teach you is that there's a safety officer who's assigned to the flight operations as the aviation safety officer, primarily to make sure that airplanes don't crash. And so when we taught that, we would basically say, um, you know, one of the one of the emergency support functions is the safety officer or, or the part of the ICS structure is the safety officer. And their job is to make sure that the operation is safe. And then we would move right along. And so it's always funny to me how everything has evolved so much, especially in in, in my perspective and in, in what I do now. But um, everything is definitely standardized and that, that's always a good thing. So um, John, what are your thoughts in terms of uh, public sector, public health? How, how does everything go for you? Yeah, so the, the construct that we use, um, and this is pretty common across all, all of emergency management, but to, to look at, um, you know, what are the planning elements and partners that we need to bring to the table? How do we, how do we organize? How do we, how do we train and equip uh, and, and finally uh, exercise? So the, the acronym that creates is, is POETI, so 
plan, organize, equip, train, and, and exercise. Uh, so, so we apply that. Uh, that works quite well when you when you look at things through that lens. Um, you're trying to address all, all of those elements. Um, and then in, in terms of uh, the capabilities that we're trying to, to build for public health, we kind of have a, a Bible from CDC on 15 capabilities. You know, the first two are really focused on community, so community preparedness, uh, which really focuses on um, that kind of building that readiness for response. Uh, the second one is, is community recovery. So right off the bat, very strong focus on, on community. Uh, and then there's, of course, like 13 other uh, capabilities that address epidemiology, lab, mass fatality, communications, uh, information sharing, uh, you know, pharmaceutical interventions, non-pharmaceutical interventions, and things like isolation and quarantine. So pretty, pretty broad and definitely capturing uh, all of the public health uh, types of interventions, uh, including the health-related and human services-related components or mass care-related components. Uh, and to give you an, an idea of you know, just how diverse that, that can look, everybody's aware of what we've been doing for the last uh, couple of years, going on three years now with, with COVID, uh, first doing testing and then being able to do vaccinations uh, and similarly doing some of the same activities for, for monkeypox. Uh, but diverging from that a little bit, for, for Zika, we didn't have those kinds of uh, interventions available to us. So we looked at uh, what kinds of uh, elements can we put in place to help reduce the risk of, of Zika transmission. And of course, Zika is transmitted by the mosquito. So uh, one of the programs we set up out of my office was to provide uh, window screens uh, to, to people whose whose homes did not have you know, adequate window screens to keep the mosquitoes out of, out of the house, uh, so pretty pretty diverse uh, and different type of response uh, compared to providing vaccinations. Uh, we always do quite a bit of outreach to the community, uh, provide uh, training opportunities, town town hall meetings. Um, a big big portion of public health really is about getting the message out, raising awareness, uh, helping people to make informed decisions. So that messaging component uh, in the long run is is probably a, about 90% of what we uh, need to do and how we actually uh, uh, interact with the majority of, of the community. Uh, on the service side, we really are much more of a uh, safety net type of provider. So the lion's share of the population should be getting their health services uh, from uh, private or commercial entities. Uh, and then the, the public sector or government sector really is that safety net provider with some, some key critical partners like the federally qualified health centers, community health centers, who really try to provide services to that underserved population. That's, what, that's really our sweet spot, the underserved population, underrepresented, um, you know, they're really the hard to reach uh, folks. And in a lot of ways, they are the most at risk as well. They, they tend to be, uh, you know, pe people who have low incomes, uh, uh, language access issues, um, you know, live in, live in zip codes that, um, you know, are in, in food deserts, uh, have 
little little to, to no access to healthcare. Uh, they tend to be un, uninsured or underinsured. You know, all of those complement of uh, um, indicators that that really speak to a high level of needs. Um, you know, with respect to public health, we focus a lot of effort on on trying to reach those folks, get get them into care, get them um, associated to uh, medical homes, uh, and and we try to do that. You know, my program is is much more focused on the emergency side, but through the whole health department, uh, some of those needs are are there consistently, and we we try to get them met, um, whether it's blue sky or or red sky days. So, Lots of opportunity here. That's great. And definitely very uh, valuable work and, and very appreciated. And um, it's interesting, uh, as you were as you were discussing that, uh, I was thinking as I was just having a conversation last week, we were speaking with some AmeriCorps volunteers and I was explaining to them, they were asking, they said, um, they said we're interested in learning about in uh, learning about about um, public safety, and I thought for a second and I said, well, I said I can tell I can tell you all about it. I said, but first I need to ask you some clarifying questions. I said because the reality is that within just the health department alone, you've got an enormous amount of people who are providing safety. It just depends on what level and to whom, you know, so like you said, you've got um, programs like like Beat the Heat, you know, for those that are uh, don't have a lot of air conditioning when it's 108 degrees outside, or you have um, like like um, barriers for mosquitoes, for Zika virus, and all these different programs that are so important. And then you've got, on top of that, you've got the people providing vaccinations and epidemiology and all the public health response. And then on top of that, you've got the EMS and you've got the firefighters and you've got the police and, and the emergency managers. So, you know, everybody's providing some kind of safety. It just depends on if it's macro management, you know, macro planning for the whole city, or if you're talking about people that are providing uh, community engagement and, you know, direct direct uh, services, or people like in my line of work where we're providing um, safety planning for the people that are providing the safety planning for the people that are providing the services, you know, so it's, it's really very interesting and um, it, it certainly couldn't happen without everybody being involved. So that's, that's a great thing. Um, that actually kind of brings us to the next thing here. So I know in both of y'all's cases, um, it, it relates to healthcare, you know, like, like in Amber's case, you, like you discussed, there's acute care hospitals and, and all different types of, uh, organizations of varying sizes, whether they're private or, or public. And in, in John's case, you've got the, the public health, and that of course relates to all the city services as well as all the partners. You've got SickTrack and you've got all the hospital systems. And so in our case, of course, we have a lot of members with the ASSP as well as AOHP who are in safety, occupational health, and, and risk management. So they're working for these types of organizations and typically they'll end up in that kind of role where they're providing either safety management or occupational health services. So question was, um, in what ways do you feel like um, healthcare, whether it's acute care or even ambulatory clinics and public health, where we've got definitely, we've got clinical services, but we've also got all these other programs, including a lot of outreach. Um, 
in what ways do those differ with emergency management? Are we are we talking about the same types of planning and preparedness and response, or or do you think there's a lot of differences? Um, John, let's start with you this time. What do you think? I think there's quite a bit of overlap, um, but there's also some some clear um, demarcations, I guess is a good way to put it. So, um, you know, even looking at the healthcare system and what we the services that we do in uh, our public health clinics, uh, they don't match uh, 100% to the services that are available to uh, or through the hospital. So those things kind of really complement each other, right? Um, and even with the private sector um, doctors' offices that that provide uh, you know primary care, you know, public health is is not primary care. So we're we're trying to get uh, our clients that might be coming to us specifically uh, uh, to get treated or diagnosed for, for say, an STD. Um, but we want to make sure that they actually have a medical home uh, you know, with, a, with a family practitioner or you know, some other kind of uh, primary care provider that they can see for, uh, you know, managing all of, all of their uh, conditions, right? Whether it's a, a chronic illness, uh, uh, those more or less routine infections like common cold, the flu, uh, or, or even though some of the ones that we support, STDs and COVID, uh, those kinds of things. But really having them, uh, you know, have a doctor that they see uh, for those routine visits, uh, wellness checks, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so really trying to promote that, uh, uh, you know, in concert with what what we're doing. Um, and then when we're looking at the emergency response side, uh, our, our healthcare partners are really critical and we look primarily at how can we protect that infrastructure uh, so that it stays available, uh, especially in the looking at it from the emergency department uh, standpoint, uh, where we want people to be able to call 911 and, and get to the hospital and get the, the care that they need, you know, from the, the car accident that they were in, the heart attack that they, they're, they're having at home, you know, whatever those uh, um, critical life events might be uh, and, and not uh, be reporting to an emergency department that's, that's overwhelmed with worried well or uh, people who don't know where to go to shelter because it's flooding and they're, you know, they're, they're basically, uh, seeking out services that that really are, are not meant to be delivered through the emergency department. So we really want to try and protect that infrastructure and keep it available for those critical needs. Um, at the same time, it's really important that we that we monitor that as well. So like during COVID, uh, we're collecting the information from the healthcare system on uh, you know, just what is the, the volume of people sh showing up in the ERs that have uh, influenza-like illness or potential COVID, um, how many of them are being admitted, uh, how many of those ICU beds are uh, being used to treat COVID, uh, and, and really giving us good measures of you know, what the impact is, is being uh, on the community, and that helps to inform uh, some of the actions that we can take, which uh, by and large, again, boil down a lot to messaging, like trying to implement uh, uh, some of these uh, uh, 
social distancing practices, uh, wearing wearing masks, uh, and, and taking on practices like you know if you're if you're sick don't don't report to work or don't go to school. You know make make sure that you're um, not becoming the the vehicle of transmission uh, for, for these uh, significant public health illnesses. Uh, so working with our healthcare partners is is really critical, and and here in the Houston area, we're we're quite fortunate that we have uh, a rather exceptional coalition uh, of healthcare partners through through SETRAC and the, the Regional Healthcare Preparedness Coalition. Um, so I th I think the important message here is is that where we have uh, while we have some overlap and and some areas of differences, we really complement each other and work well together uh, to to try and uh, take care of, of uh, our community. That's great. It, it's interesting as as you were talking about that. It was it was bringing to mind some of the conversations I've had lately. As a matter of fact, as far as as far as uh, safety protocols for disease exposure prevention is, you know, for example, if we need to prevent exposures to something like a like a SARS or a or even something like an Ebola, we, we know how to do that. You know, it's just a matter of knowing when to implement those protocols. So like you just said, you know, when are we gonna implement the, the um, capacity limits or the distancing or the, the source control and all these different things that we can do. And that's kind of the, the tricky part is knowing at what point does that risk go up? You know, so what's the local infection rate and what's the potential severity of the you know, of the pathogen in question. And so I, th I think that, you know, what public health does in that, in that regard is, is so important because they keep the, the, the view, the overview of all of these different um, factors and variables for the, for the whole geographic area, you know, and they're able to provide that, you know, um, whether it be policy or whether it's recommendations and that that's, that's what gives the people at the tactical level the information they need to know when it's, you know, proverbially when it's time to put on the respirator, you know, or when it's time to start keeping 10 feet between people or whatnot. And um, all the programs that go on, like like tuberculosis control, you know, that all also contributes so that the, the people at the, at the ER, for example, or at the clinical care unit, they know what's going on in the outside world and what may be coming through the, the hospital doors. So really interesting stuff um amber what are, what are your thoughts on that coming from the come from the the healthcare side i definitely i want to emphasize john's point about the vitality of that collaboration between public health and healthcare entities covid was a, a huge example of that um i think that like you said there are some um, overlap but there's also a lot of collaboration that needs to happen to keep that overall medical infrastructure available to the community um, from an acute care and a clinic standpoint that really is the bottom line with emergency management is making sure that we can keep the doors open as long as it's safe to do so um, and that we're able to keep that medical infrastructure in place for the community in a time that they most likely need it most um, so i think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of benefit to a strong collaboration between the two different entities that's great yeah it's definitely um definitely important i know having having been on either side of that equation at different points in 
in in my career you know we definitely know that there's a lot to be said about that um you can give me this one second let me make sure my audio is not not tripping up can y'all still hear me yes okay great i was making i was getting a little weird signal from my device i want to make sure i wasn't going ghost on it um <laughs> all right awesome well that kind of brings us to the to the other part of this so like we said you know we've got all the emergency management going on we've got the public health going on and of course all that all that feeds into those policies and guidance and recommendations to keep people safe in the in the public and that ideally will prevent crises you know in the in the acute care world as well and so on both sides of that whether we're talking about first responders or whether we're talking about clinical care or even if we're talking about community outreach or whatnot then we've got safety and occupational health and so those of us in our our uh, unique profession you know we're kind of there to to help to make sure that we can mitigate any hazards to those that are volunteering to to go forward and so my question is uh, in your experiences you know how does the local safety advisor or, or safety officer in the ICS case um, how does that person integrate into your work do you see them a lot in the field or, or in the EOC or um, in um, in the workplace on a day-to-day -day basis uh, what have your experiences been like there um, Amber let's start with you this time Sure. Um, so I think it depends on the type of incident and the response. So if you're talking about, for example, a patient decontamination response, that safety officer is going to have a very visible presence. Um, if you're talking um, something that maybe isn't as, I hate to say dangerous, but dangerous uh, for the response, um, they may not be as visible. Um, and I think, and I don't mean to segue, but for me, I think that's an important point is when we're in this response mode in the EOC or, you know, boots on the ground response, um, we're in tunnel vision and we're in disaster mode and we're trying to deal with the situation at hand. And that role of the safety advisor and the safety officer is vital to ensuring that everybody goes home that night, that everyone is safe, that we don't cause a subsequent issue in the middle of the disaster response. Um, so I would encourage anyone in that role to, to step into, you know, feeling empowered in that role that I know it can be difficult when everyone is in disaster mode and, and trying to deal with things to be like the one feeling like you're putting a wrench in it, like that's not safe or we really need to sit back and think about this. But that at the end of the day is is vital to making sure that, you know, we're putting that oxygen mask on first so we can help others and we can respond to the situation. So I've always been very grateful for the individual in that role and in that ability to make sure that we're all operating in a safe environment. Cool. Yeah, it's always interesting. Um, you know, you if I recall, you may have even been there when we had this conversation. It would have been about eight years ago, maybe. Um, we were talking about that that same topic about the role of the the safety officer, and the conversation was about doing a response, something like a like like a hazmat or or a patient decon, different type of situation in the middle of the summer in texas where you've got you know 108 degrees outside and 120 percent humidity and and what we were talking about was how 
something as simple as somebody to monitor and make sure that there's work rest cycles and proper decontamination and uh, hydration and um, electrolytes are being replenished. And that can be the thing that prevents more casualties, which can turn the whole response sideways. And I remember somebody was there. I, I don't mean this as a diss or anything, but I, if I recall, this person was a firefighter and their comment was that, you know, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're taking care of a hazmat. We're not, we're not thinking about a bottle of water, you know, and we said that bottle of water might be the thing that makes you able to respond, you know? And um, so I, I appreciate your comments there because um, it, it, that, that, yeah, that, that could be the thing that, that enables the, the response to, to be effective uh, and not to have a whole bunch of variables such as uh, more casualties or whatnot. Um, uh, John, what are your thoughts on that from the, from the public health side? So, Corey, certainly since, since you've joined us uh, here at the health department and, and uh, especially through COVID, um, it's, it's become more and more apparent just how critical it is to have uh, you know, a real safety professional in, in that role to, to identify um, those hazards and, and what the appropriate uh, control measures are. Um, you and our biosafety officer have been immensely helpful through you know, all the COVID response. Um, a few things that come to mind in, in terms of uh, just different responses we, we've had or I've been involved with uh, over the years uh, involving safety issues. Um, so this this one that comes to mind, it's not from the use area, but um, speaks speaks to you know the level of awareness that uh, is is needed in this case local awareness and so we were doing uh, some door-to-door -door canvassing uh, and and the safety officer uh, made a point of uh, um, you know letting letting the staff know who who happened to be a mixture of uh, local personnel as as well as uh, people that were brought in remotely from other areas of the state uh, and he pointed out the importance of recognizing purple fence posts, uh, which, you know, I had, I had no idea what that symbol meant. Uh, but he was pointing out that uh, that was a clear indication of a, a potential trespass hazard that could be life threatening. So if you didn't recognize the, the purple fence post and enter that person's property, uh, you might risk getting shot. Um, so that kind of awareness, uh, I think, is, is real critical. Um, and, and some things you, you really need to know, kind of the, the lay of the land and, and that community. Um, other pieces, like you've spoken to, on uh, identifying the hazards and, and knowing uh, those layers of, of uh, protections that can be implemented, uh, also very critical. So we've we've had some situations where uh, we haven't had quite as a, a knowledgeable safety officer uh, available to us, and that. Uh, focus might stick to, uh, you know, some of the more day-to-day uh, -day concerns that, you know, most hopefully most people understand. You know, slips, trips, and falls types of of concerns, catching things that, um, you know, tripping hazards, that kind of thing. Which ho hopefully uh, we've raised the level of awareness enough that that uh, most people can can see those uh, without need of of uh, much prompting, but. Um, you know that that day-to-day -day effort uh, and, and doing activities 
uh, outside of response, I think is really, really critical. And those reminders through our monthly meetings, uh, bringing to light um, during staff meetings and safety meetings, some of these issues so that they get um, a level of awareness, you know, uh, maybe not all of the time, but more of the time uh, so that uh, people can be more, more self-aware and, and more, uh, I guess, safety aware, just where, where there might be hazards that they could overlook. Uh, and for me on the public health side, a lot of it has to do with different types of exposures, where, whether it's communicable disease, uh, heat, cold, uh, uh, dehydration. Um, you know, another scenario that comes to mind was during Ike, I actually had a, a team that were supporting the uh, EMS operations down in Galveston to uh, help evacuate UTMB. Uh, and a lot of that planning was directed from, from Austin. And, and those folks didn't recognize that uh, you know, during a major hurricane like Ike, uh, retail outlets like Target, because operations were based out of the Target parking lot. Uh, and their assumption was we wouldn't have to worry about water because we could get water from Target. Well, you know, as, as we're within hours of a hurricane, there's, there's no bottled water to be found in any uh, uh, retail outlet. So uh, it was kind of an oversight that, um, you know, lo a local safety planning person could, could see that coming. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, uh, it had an impact on some, some of our staff to the point where we had to have them placed on IVs to rehydrate them. Um, so the, the consequences of uh, uninformed decisions can, can have some of the safety impacts. Uh, and if we don't have that proper uh, ICS hierarchy established to monitor safety situations, uh, then they can go, they can go on un, uh, unmitigated uh, you know, for a time. So we also wanna make sure that uh, we're empowering uh, you know, all of our, our staff, whether they're in operations or, or planning or admin finance um, you know, to participate in that reporting process too, that if they uh, see something, say something, particularly uh, as relates to potential safety, uh, um, safety concerns uh, and raise them back to the safety officer so that, uh, well, hopefully that they can be resolved quickly, uh, even without the safety officer uh, having to, to take the intervention himself or herself. Uh, but that they're made aware that uh, this happened here, could be happening elsewhere, and to make sure it gets addressed. And, and it covers such a wide gamut of uh, potential exposures. It could be all kinds of weather issues, um, like we have with um, lightning, especially if we're outside, uh, extreme cold, extreme heat, uh, and then a lot of other physical um, issues like tripping hazards, uh, you know, being around automotive, uh, automobiles or other moving equipment, just all around you is, is so many potentials for, uh, you know, safety hazards to, uh, you know, go unmitigated and unrecognized. So I think that safety officer role, it's, it's real critical and uh, how you go about integrating that um, really needs to be multifaceted. Uh, one to recognize the importance of, of assigning that 
that role, but also uh, ensuring that uh, we're raising awareness across the entire ICS platform so that uh, we can easily recognize those hazards and, and get them resolved. Awesome. Yeah, it's definitely definitely true. There's a lot. It, it's kind of a something that somebody said to me, uh, maybe it's like four or five months ago, they had said that um, we were talking about about uh, safety management. They they had told me they were talking to students down the street at at uh, University of Houston Clear Lake, where they have they have a really good safety management degree program. And she had told the students the thing about safety that most people don't talk about is that the the field is about a million miles wide and about a million miles deep. And so there's so many different potential hazards and threats in there that you have to kind of constantly be looking to identify them. And then once you identify them, then you have to figure out, you know, what's the risk level? Because of course it ranges, you know, like you said, everything from a, a slip, trip and fall, you know, all the way to, um, you know, some of these things like a pandemic, for example, that, you know, we haven't seen in a hundred years and now we're very, very familiar with it. So it's interesting. I, I used to always use that as an example for risk assessment is, you know, risk assessment is uh, frequency and severity. And I used to say that it's kind of like if you talked about a, like a velociraptor attack, you know, it's like, yeah, you're going to die, but it's probably never going to happen, you know, <laughs> short of, you know, science fiction, but, um, never yeah, say never. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll jinx myself tomorrow. There'll be a YouTube video of a velociraptor. Um, have you seen Jurassic Park? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was, it's funny you say that there was a, um, a little clip somebody put on social media. It said on the head, on the headline, it said, um, some scientist or some lab, they said, they're uh, inching closer to being able to clone or or something, um, being able to use dinosaur DNA. And they the only thing they put on there put apparently they have not seen uh, any of the five Jurassic Park movies. You know, those don't end well ever. You know. Nope. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, there's there's so there's so much stuff in that 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 um, it can it can certainly pop up and. Um, we, we've definitely, definitely need to be, need to be aware of that. Um, so that kind of brings to the last question. So at this point, you know, we've talked about, we got the emergency management process where we're, we're able to do the planning, preparedness, response, recovery, and then that applies differently, whether we're talking about <clears throat> um, a public service, public health, or if we're talking about first response, or if we're talking about um, acute care, you know, either way, same site, same, same uh, EM cycle, but we're talking about different um, clientele, so to speak, different operations. And then we got that safety officer who's involved there, whether it's on a day-to-day -day basis for the, the occupational side of it, or, or whether it's on a, you know, full tilt response, and they're thinking about, you know, high severity hazards like infectious disease or hazardous materials or things of that nature. So, Y'all have been involved in all of that, you know, um, in, in many capacities from, from everything you've been talking about. So if you were talking to somebody that showed up tomorrow and they said, I'm, I'm your new safety advisor, 
what's what's something that you would relay to them that you'd like to see to make sure that they're providing what you need and that'll help them to be be successful in their role and providing you know effective and, and efficient safety leadership what what's something that that you would impart to them um john let's start with you this time what do you what do you think well, Corey, I'm, I'm hoping that I have the opportunity to introduce them to you and, and to model some of some of their actions based based on the things that you've been doing here at the health department. So I think probably the, the strongest message I would give them is, uh, you know, really know their stuff, but also understand that in, in most cases, um, applying the, the hierarchy of controls is is really about understanding the the layers and the and the potential triggers for when when do you need uh, you know what complement of, of controls right because like you're saying uh, um, we know what all the control measures are for for covid uh, but do we need to be implementing all of them you know uh, in in every situation or uh, um, are there situations where we can pare that down? And, and I think that's the thing that uh, can get lost in some of these conversations and how you approach that, like uh, uh, presenting, you know, here are the control options, here, here is that risk assessment, uh, whether it's a you know, low, moderate, or, or severe threat, best, best understand that uh, and you know, take those appropriate uh, steps. Um, and then long term, you know, to, to establish a rapport with uh, those folks that you're working with, whether it's you know other partners in, in the ICS structure, in the, the department or, or business programs, uh, or or the the rank and file uh, coworkers, if you will, uh, so so that you establish that relationship that that level of trust um, and that understanding that uh, you know you're you're providing an an ongoing service through you know different modalities so you know for instance uh, putting out messaging to all employees via email um, hosting uh, uh, webinars accessible to to all employees uh, or having committees uh, uh, to to try and really identify you know where do we have uh, significant safety concerns uh, or equally important where are we doing exceptionally well at, at controlling these concerns because hearing the good news is important too uh, so I think all of those things are are, are quite important uh, and as with everything else in uh, emergency planning and emergency response it's it's really about having uh, uh, those relationships and that reputation, um, you know, so that you, you're building everything on the foundation of trust. Awesome, yeah, that's that's definitely definitely wise. And um, it's interesting what what you were just talking about there is. I, I I was talking to some people from National Safety Council earlier and that that same thing got brought up where there's this unfortunate thing that happens with 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 safety leaders every now and then where 
it, it may be because they're just not they're not reading the room and they're they're kind of they're they're thinking kind of like I got to fill my quota you know and so now they're not thinking about the other side of it is you know how it's being perceived by others or they might you know just just um you know just not be not be present in the moment or whatnot but they'll constantly hit on all the negatives you know they'll say this is this is wrong and um you know this this risk is uncontrolled and these people are not following the safety protocol and um i haven't got the money for this equipment that we need and and people are just eventually going you know we we really just don't want you around you're you're really kind of you're 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 almost counterproductive at that point and um same thing applies when you get those situations where they go you know, like we know where the hierarchy of controls, you know, you've got elimination, substitution, engineering. So they'll go, I want to see this hazard eliminated, you know, and the rest of the organization is going, I know that's the safest thing to do, but if we eliminate that hazard, that means we're also eliminating the ability to operate, you know? So it's like, it's, it, there's this, I don't want to say compromise, but it just has to work out to where it's, it, it's the most effective control within the scope of that operation. Otherwise, um, you know, nothing happens. It's kind of like the old cliche. It's like we made the operation so safe that everybody went home. You know, it's like we we have no reason to be here anymore because we can't work. Um, so those are definitely great points. Um, and definitely Im impactful from 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 your position. <clears throat> um, Amber, what do you think? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so from an emergency management perspective, and I mean, this applies to, to any role, but I would first and foremost want to make sure that they're familiar with the ICS structure, with the communication flow, with um, the command and control concepts, just to make it easier for them um, as they integrate into that response effort. Since mainly this is not something they do as a large part of their job, um, I would also encourage them to to ensure they're integrated into the mitigation and planning part of these responses, um, where they can be proactive about building safety considerations into the plans uh, before they're activated, and then also supporting that safety culture um, for the response and for um, those different tactics, tactics and pieces. Definitely. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, the proactive part of it is really important that there again it's that same difference between you know being being part of the solution and building the relationships and 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 having a productive voice versus just being the safety cop you know running around trying to trying to find things that are wrong and trying to fix them all on the back end um so that's that's definitely important um and also like you said there is you know understanding the understanding the construct is um there there's lately that there's a lot more of that being taught in in safety management where um especially in like like uh, graduate programs where there's there's needs to be an understanding of you know not only emergency management but also uh, epidemiology and and toxicity and things of that nature that get a little bit further away from occupational hazards but it also takes a lot for the individual safety leader to go to find those things because we found out with the pandemic it, it was one of those things that you have a lot of people that that do safety for a living 
but very few of them had ever worked with infectious disease. And there was a, a lot of in-house training and a lot of, we did a lot of stuff with ASSP, um, National City Council, AOHP, a lot of webinars, a lot of training. We're even to this day, we're still doing conference presentations to make sure that should something like this come back, another another SARS or we dealt with monkeypox this summer and now and we have the potential for Ebola, which we're praying does not happen. Um, and there's um, there's a need for it. So even though they may not be uh, infection preventionists in a hospital, there's a need to understand how contamination control and all these things work and how those respirator programs tie into it. So great points from, from both of y'all. But with all that being said, and I we're kind of coming up on the hour and, and y'all are busy people, so I want to respect your time. Um, John, is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap it up? No, I, th I think we, we touched on some great stuff between the three of us, so uh, nothing more to add here. Cool, thank you. How about yourself, Amber? Well, I just want to thank you, Corey, for uh, bringing us together to have this conversation. Um, it's great to hear the integration of emergency management to to safety and uh, and during COVID, COVID was so interesting because safety was a concern within the EOCs or the command centers because you have a communicable virus. And so those safety officers played a big role in trying to convince everyone, look, I know you're used to being in this room, in this role, in this response, but we have to take into consideration your safety of having a bunch of people in a room <laughs> um, during a pandemic. And so um, it definitely, they played a vital role um, in this response. So I'm, I'm really grateful to have this conversation today. Awesome. Yeah, and that, that's definitely true. It's definitely an interesting experience and um, certain, certainly glad that, glad that, glad to talk to y'all. Um, I always take it as a compliment that, you know, the people I've known over the years are, are still willing to talk to me. You know, it's, <laughs> I always think it's like, I haven't gotten written off. That's good. You know, so I, I certainly appreciate y'all's time and, and your, you know, dedication to all of this, especially being willing to provide this uh, professional development forum. So we'll go ahead and wrap it up then so I can um, not take up your whole evening. But um, for everybody listening, if you haven't heard it yet, definitely check out the podcast. We're located at anchor.fm backslash ASSP-HCPS-HealthBeat. And the AOHP podcast is anchor.fm backslash AOHP. Uh, we're up to 43 episodes, and so we've got a lot of fantastic topics and really, really great speakers, including today's. Otherwise, we have a webinar for ASSP actually tomorrow. Um, so if you don't hear this before then, um, you can find the replay. It's going to be with Pete Suska, who is the CEO of OPX Safety, and he's going to be talking about how to integrate uh, safety into holistic process management and he does that with all kinds of clientele across the whole world so that'll be a good one and then otherwise there's a replay of our webinar that we did on halloween with uh, sean galloway who is the ceo of proact safety and norman ritchie who is over vpsi and they talked about the high reliability principles and what that means for safety leadership 
we also had enough follow-on questions from that webinar. We did another one with just myself, Sean, and Norman, and we just went through the rest of the questions so that they could answer those without having to write individual essays to answer them. Uh, so those are all available for replay now, and we're going to have more coming up in the new year. We're going to be talking to the ASSP um, Black Sin Safety Excellence, as well as the Women in Safety Excellence, and the Hispanic safety professionals. So definitely check that one out. It's gonna be fantastic. But otherwise, we'll wrap it up tonight and we'll talk to everybody real soon. Have a great day.